Thanks, Marcus. Well, it's an interesting piece of writing that we hear from history, isn't it? It kind of makes you go, what is this about? Why don't we pray now together as we've heard God's word read, that we'd make sense of this and understand what is going on here in this part of, of history. Let's pray. Father, as we've just heard your word read, as we've heard what's gone on amongst your people, um, the events of history that have happened, we ask that this morning that we would see you, we would see ourselves the way you see us, and that we would see the world the way you see it. We ask that as we hear your word this morning, that we would hear you. Amen. Well, if you ever had to choose between sight or sound, which would you choose? Between hearing and seeing. Right? Quick quick vote. Um, those that, you've got to vote, right? You've got to put your hand up. If, if you're like, okay, I'd rather be able to see than to hear. Put up your hand now. So the seat, whoa, there you go. Okay, and what about if you'd rather be able to hear than see? Okay, interesting. I wonder if the hearers were the musicians. There you go. Well, um, I think it's, a, I don't want to trivialize, trivialize that question, but I do want us to think if, if there's a priority biblically about between hearing and seeing. Because I think there actually is. As we look at this part of the Bible, as we see what happens throughout history, the Hebrews never get to see God. The people of Israel, they never actually get to see him. Um, but they do get to hear him. As they gather in, in Exodus 17, as they left the kind of promised land out of, out of Egypt, um, they gather at Mount Sinai and there God speaks and they hear God speak. They actually hear the voice of God. And then all throughout Deuteronomy, as Moses writes down the kind of last instructions for them as they head out and, and live as God's people, he keeps saying, Hear, O Israel, and obey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, to what the Lord your God is saying to you. For this group of people listening to God was very important. Part of the privilege of being the people of God was to hear the voice of God. That's the claim of the Bible. And I want you to, maybe you're here today kind of checking out who Jesus is. You're like, what is this stuff about God? What is this Bible? I just want you to kind of go, okay, if this is true, if God could speak, if we could hear God, what would he be like? What, what, what do we make of the God that's presented to us? throughout these pages of history. What we will see is that Israel had the privileged position of hearing the voice of God, the word of God. What we're about to see is what happens when you don't listen to the word of God. The story so far in this book of 1 Samuel has been um, God's people, Israel, are without a leader, without, without a king. There never had been a king in Israel. And, and they've got other nations coming in around them and they want a king. There are two reasons why they wanted a king as these people. Because, number one, they wanted to be like everyone else. They saw the other nations around them. Like, those nations have got kings. They've got great armies, massive chariots. We want to be like them. We want to look strong. We know you're supposed to be our king, and you are our king, kind of God. You've, you've kept us out of Egypt, and you've kind of done stuff here. But we want a king like them. And the second reason they wanted a king was, well, actually an even stronger rebellion against God. See, God was their king. He was the one that brought them out of Egypt. He was the one that was looking after them and, and, and caring for them. And they wanted to put a human king in, in, in the place of God. 
a king that they chose, a king that was what we see about Samuel, head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. They wanted a king that would stand up to the biggest enemies that were around. And in doing that, they tried to replace God. But God surprisingly says okay to this request. And we saw last week that after warning of the dangers of, of a human king and trying to find our security in what we want or the things around us or kingship or leadership, God gives them what they want. Really, it's a punishment. You think a human king is better than me? You think you can run the world better than I can? Kind of does sound like me a little bit. Often I do feel like I can do things a bit better. If I were God, I'd do things differently, wouldn't you? It's always scary to start sentences uh, like that. So God gives them what they want. Like a kid who wants to go on a cigar. He gives them the whole cigar and says, smoke the whole lot. You can see the fruit of your actions if you want to see what happens, if you put a human king in, if you put yourselves under this king. We get to chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, and it kind of looks promising. Saul, this leader who was head and shoulders above everyone else, starts winning, and he has this victory. Then in chapter 13, he rejects God. He doesn't listen to God's voice. And then in chapter 15, where we'll spend most of our time today, um, we get God's assessment of Saul. We get what God thinks of him. And it's a very different type of kingship. It's a different type of kingship. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel told Saul, The Lord set me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now, listen to the words of the Lord. As Saul was set up as king over Israel, he was a very different type of king. Uh, see, the people that he was to rule weren't his people. Notice, they were, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. While Saul was king, the people still belonged to God. And Saul was to remember that. God was God. He was the true and living God and there was no other. And Saul was to rule underneath him. And secondly, to be a king under the Lord meant you had to listen to God's word. Listen to the voice of the prophet. Which meant Samuel, this, this, this prophet, this person who was speaking on God's behalf to Saul was the one he had to listen to. It's a very different type of kingship. But above all else, the narrator reminds us at this point in 1 Samuel 15... This king was to listen to the words of the Lord. Literally, it says, listen to the sound of the word of the Lord. Now, we find ourselves surrounded in this world by so many sounds. You know, some catch our ears, some are just background noise, some affect us deeply. Like a, a piece of music that can stir so, so many emotions, or a baby's cry. Either way... <laughs> Yeah, an explosion. What was that? It kind of alerts us. What's going on? Um, important news. Have you ever found that? The sound of some news that matters, that wakes you up, <laughs> makes you think, do I need to listen here? Well, among all the sounds in the world, the people of Israel were privileged to hear the sound of God. They've heard the sounds of the word of the Lord. If this is true, this is amazing. That God could speak and that we could hear him. This was their unique calling. Therefore, a king over this people, a leader, must, more important than anything else, be the one who listens to the sounds of the word of the Lord. Do you see why it's important? That's what you're looking for in a leader, Israel. 
the true leader of the church, of our church here. It isn't me or Dave or Lyndon or our exec. The true leader of our church is the Word of God. God is the ruler of this church. We need to sit underneath His authority. It's what? Auckland EV, God's Word, the Bible, is the ultimate authority. It's the thing we test everything against. As we work out what we are to believe and the way we are to act, God's Word trumps all. Leaders will fail. Leaders do fail. You just look at the political leaders of of our nation and you you see the kind of bumblings that go on, the corruption. You look at leaders of churches, of all sorts of organizations doing horrible things across the world. The reality is leaders fail. But God's word never fails. God doesn't. His word never returns empty. His promises are all come true and they have just check history go through and look at the promises throughout the old testament and just see how many of them have come about exactly as he has said test it against other sources go and have a look and you'll see that this god's word is truth human leaders will fail but god's word never does so don't put your faith in human leaders in me, in politicians. We need to put our faith in God who will lead us by His Word. God still does work through leaders. He still does raise up leaders to lead us, but always under the ultimate authority of Him. And so this is His Word to Saul, His underleader. Remember, the king that Israel wanted. Have a look at verse 2. Judgment comes. He says, judge the Amalekites. Verse 2. This is what the Lord of armies, of hosts, says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Don't spare them. Kill men and women, children and infants, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now I don't know what you expected to hear when you decided to come to church today. I don't know if that was what you expected God to be saying, to wipe out people, women, children, infants. You're kind of like, what is going on here? You know, it's passages like this that call people like Richard Dawkins to call God some genocidal, infanticidal maniac. (laughs) What is going on? I think sometimes Christians find this sort of verse hard. I mean, you're like, whoa, at first glance, this is strong. Why would God say that? We kind of find ourselves in the position where we wish God hadn't said it. And I've heard people say, look, yeah, I know the God of the Old Testament, he was a judging and a a harsh God. But the God of the New Testament, he's a loving God. He, He cares for us more. But friends, that's a mistake. For the God we meet, and this passage says, does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And God is good. So how do we reconcile these two? Well, the Amalekites were Israel's enemies. When Israel were coming out of Egypt, they're like, let's just take these people out. They picked a fight and and they started trying to kill and take away God's people. They attacked them. And at that moment, God had said, these people will pay the penalty that is right for attacking my people. You make enemies with my people, you make enemies with me. And there's something right about judgment, isn't there? About getting penalized for what we do. You see it in in the family, where if you just let kids get away with whatever they want, they just keep doing whatever they want. 
I gave that quote of a friend who's a policeman who said the first time some kids hear the word no is when the cop is pushing their face into the dirt. No, we need, we need discipline to be able to know how to live. I'm not saying harsh discipline, but here they've rebelled against God. They haven't just done something. They've taken out His people. They've, they've started war on Israel. And God is going to put things right. You, you can't do that. You can't start war on God and get away with it. It won't happen. See, in Exodus 17, God made this promise. It's on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. God's word never fails. Here it's written, what, four, five, six hundred years earlier? Seven? And yet what he tells Saul to do now is to execute that promise that he said, to right the wrong, to penalize those who have wronged him. See, the Amalekites weren't innocent. They were part of a people who had rebelled against God. Sure, they not, might not have been the ones that have done it, but they are part of, of that family. They're part of that nation. And you can't... I, I think about New Zealand, right? We get so many privileges as people here with a New Zealand passport. We get to enjoy the social security of the nation, not because of anything we did, but just by being born in this country. There are benefits that we enjoy because we're part of a nation. And if we're happy to take the benefits that we enjoy for being part of a nation, then we need to take, well, the negatives, the repercussions of our forefathers' history. We're all too happy to accept the positive, but not often the negative. We go, that's unjust. So God here punishes. And the picture of God that we get is, is very different from the way so many people view God. I think we view God often like some fairy floss distributor. He sits there and he kind of winds this thing around and gives everyone nice pretty things like sugar and spice and things that spell nice. And everyone's like, oh God, he does all the good stuff in the world. And yes, he does give the things that are good, but he's also the creator and sustainer of the universe. And you wrong him. You say, I don't want your benefits. If he's the one who gives life, if one of his benefits is life, then rejecting him means death, doesn't it? It's like saying to your power company, I don't want you in my life. Get out. Get away from me, power company. I'm not going to pay my bills. I'm not going to treat you as my power company. They say, fine, I'll turn off your power. Imagine saying that to the one who holds the key to your very next breath. I don't want you in my life. Get out. So now, God fulfills his promise and upholds his justice. And Samuel um, speaks this word to Saul and Saul listens. Have a look at verse 7. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Halavar all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured Agag, king of Amalek, alive. But he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with a sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag. And the best sheep, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams, and the best of everything else, they were not willing to destroy them. But they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Just because it's right and just doesn't mean we don't shudder for a moment. <laughs> when you think about the cost of rebellion against God, this is real. 
This happened. Saul's mission was to listen to the word of God. To listen to the sound of God's voice and do it. But Saul failed spectacularly. We see the mission failed here big time. God said completely destroy them. But verse 9, he was unwilling to completely destroy them. God said do not spare them at all. Yet they spared Agag, the king, and the best of the animals. It's in complete contrast between what God said and what actually happened. Sure, they might have done some stuff in the middle, but they didn't listen to him at all. Saul's mission as king of Israel was to listen to God's word and to do it. He didn't listen and he didn't do it. Complete failure of Israel's king to sit under the word of God. And it's interesting to note, you know, if... if, Yeah, I put myself in his shoes. I'm like, well, I would have, if I wasn't going to listen to God, I would have spared the women and children. (laughs) But, you know, hey, I'm not really like that. But him, he he doesn't. Just notice this. It's not like he's like, oh, I think this is a harsh cry, God. I'm going to spare the women and children. What he does is he's like, no, no, no. I'll take all the women, children, and infants out. I just want all your best stuff. I want your bling. I want your king as like a trophy to go, look, look who I am. Look how great I am. Listen to God's response and hear the weight of it in verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry, cried out to the Lord all night. The last time that we read in in the Bible that God was grieved or that he regretted what he did was back in Genesis. In the days of Noah, in the flood, when God saw how horrible and wicked mankind had become. And because of that, he sent a flood and wiped out the earth. Rejecting God's words has massive consequences for humanity. You've at least got to see that's the claim of the Bible. Whether you believe the Bible or not, that's the claim of the Bible. And we're going to see that the consequences of rejecting God's word for Saul... Are huge. But first, I just want to point out the deceptiveness of sin. It's the deceptiveness of, of what goes on here, of rebelling against God. Have a look at verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul. But it was reported to Samuel that Saul went to Carmel, where he has set up a monument for himself. <laughs> You're like, are you serious? This guy, like... He just hasn't listened to God. He's come back. He's gathered all this stuff that he shouldn't have done. And now he's so proud of his work. He's so arrogant, so confident. He goes up to a hill and builds himself a monument. Do you see how good I am? Look at me. I've got this life sorted. I I can just take out these kings and bring back this stuff. I'm the man. (laughs) It's the arrogance. And it gets worse. Samuel kind of confronts him. Look at verse 13. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Do you see the deceptiveness of sin? Ever found yourself in that position where you kind of want to claim you are carrying out God's will? But deep down, you know you weren't. He's so confident he's done the right thing, but he hasn't. There's something about sin that means that we sinners can't naturally see it. We don't see our own rebellion. Awareness of sin isn't a natural thing for us to work out on our own. 
It only comes as God's word confronts us, as the sound of the voice of the Lord shows us what we've done to Him. It's kind of like we're some totally kind of unaware person who's landed in a new country and totally just living however we want, unbeknownst that we're rebelling against the country's king. And we think we're doing great. This is awesome. Life's going well. But all the time we're counting up a record of what debt we'll need to pay. I wonder if that's something we should pray about. If you're a Christian, if you're here and you believe that Jesus is who the Bible claims him to be, do you pray that God would show you your sin, that he'd confront you? We should, shouldn't we? We should ask God to, to show us where we, we're blinded by our own stupidity. It's something we should pray for those who don't yet know God. That God would show them their sinfulness, just like he showed us ours and keeps showing us ours. If you're here and you're checking out Jesus and you're going, well, there are some big claims about this guy and I think there are some, some things here that there's at least some historical significance to this guy, then maybe you should ask God to show you your sinfulness. You, you want to give this Jesus a go? Ask him. Show me where I've turned my back on you. See, just pray. See what happens. Because there's something about sin that means that without God's helpfulness, we can't see it. Saul's like that. I'm like that. And you are like that. So as the conversation goes on between Saul and Samuel, you can't imagine it's going to be light. They're kind of talking at this moment, and Samuel's ears pick up something, some other sound. Not the sound of the, the word of the Lord, but like a, like, what was that? Is it Ewan? Like, what's going on? Is this a sheep? Well, and then the, the mooing of cows. Ah! It's like, we did everything, God. Ah! You're like, are you that stupid? Are you really that stupid? There's this scene in one of my favorite movies called um, The Castle. It's just about Australian, well, just genius, I think. But you might laugh at us. And like the, 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 the guy, they get annoyed at this guy who rips them off. So they take the tow truck up to his house and rip the gates off his house. And it's like, yeah, we'll show the guy. And anyway, the next morning, there's a knock on the front door. And it's the police. And they say, oh, look, do, do you know where the gates are? And like, no, no, we, we didn't do anything. We weren't, we weren't part of it. And he's like, oh, you might want to move the tow truck where the gates attached around the back of the house rather than leaving it out the front because it's a bit obvious. <laughs> they, 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 anyway, <laughs> this is what he's doing. He's like, oh, we did everything. Ah! Yeah, we didn't take many um, um, sheep. Like, what are they? Oh, how did they get there? How did that happen? <laughs> the deceptiveness of sin to think that's okay. I feel it. It's all right to just let that thing go past. God, I'm, I'm serving you. I want to put you first in every area, except maybe that one. But you know my heart. I really do. No, God help me to see my sinfulness. To see where I put myself on the throne and to say sorry. That's what I need to keep me praying. That's what I'd love you to be praying for me and for the leaders of this church and for one another. That we would see the deceptiveness of sin and listen to the sound of the word of the Lord. Listen to what, listen to what happens next. Listen to his response to the barring. Verse 15. The troops brought them <laughs> from the Amalekites and spared... Uh, the best sheep and cattle in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Oh, so now he's kind of trying to justify it. Like, where have I heard that before? 
Who ate from the tree? She did. She made me do it. Uh, Eve, why did you take the fruit? The, the snake made me do it. It's just buck passing. It's not taking responsibility. It's, it's at the core of sin is this refusal to accept our responsibility before God. The troops, look very carefully the way the narrator shows this. The troops, they brought them back. It's a plural, it's them. They brought them back. But the bit that was good, like, notice, but the rest, we destroyed. The troops, we. See, Saul includes himself in the good part, but distances himself. What sort of leader is this? Like, as I think through trying to lead this church well, I'm part of this church. I'm responsible for the actions we take and the way we live as your leader. I need to stand before God on the final day and, and be responsible before Him for the way we act as a church, for the, how much we pray or for our lack of prayer, for, for the way we take His Word seriously. I need to hear this reminder to not get rid of my responsibility. And we need to hear the reminder that we can't pass on our responsibility before God. You might think God doesn't see, but He does. So Samuel in verse 16 just says, Shut up. (laughs) Stop, he exclaimed. Let me tell you what the God of the universe said to me last night. I never want to hear those words. Let me tell you the sound of the word of the Lord. And in verse 17 to 19, Samuel explains both Saul's responsibility as a leader. He's he's the one who should have been leading these people. And then his failure as a leader. Your king. Are you going to be a leader? Don't try and shift the blame. Stand up and lead. You're the one that's failed. You need to answer for this failure. But Saul, he still hasn't got it, right? He's, He's still trying to defend himself. Look in verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on a mission the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. And I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops, again, took the sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. While Saul is playing the blame game, he lets the reality of what's actually going on slip out. Did you see it? Look at that last phrase. To sacrifice to the Lord, your God. Who's God? Saul's God? No, no, no. Saul doesn't view him as God. Saul sees him as Samuel's God. The true and living God is not the Lord, the God of Saul. And he lets it out. I haven't been treating him as God. I think I am my own God. When we try and justify ourselves with God, it only shows our blame. Sin's effect is to remove God from us. To remove God from His rightful place and put us in the center. That's what sin is. If God is the ruler of the world and we rightly deserve to to serve Him and we say, I'm not going to serve you, I'm going to do what I want, we're taking His place. He is no longer our God. Is He your God? Have you removed God from the throne and placed yourself in the center? That's exactly what Saul's done. Then Samuel says some of the most important words in the whole chapter, maybe even the whole book here. In verse 22, Samuel says, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. What is it that God requires of mankind? It's actually quite simple. Obedience. Obedience. To listen to the sound of the word of the Lord. He is a good God who made us to rule his world under him, to love him. It's good for us to obey. That's why the the principles of justice in this world are based on the Judeo-Christian kind of moral ethic. Because God's way is good and right. So we need to obey. It's plain and simple. How does God want me to respond? Listen to Him and obey Him. There's no amount of religious activity that can make up for that one requirement of obedience. You know what I mean by religious activity? I think God hates religion. Religion is this idea that, oh, we we can offer God something that He doesn't have. And so if we do enough things that God doesn't have, we can somehow appease Him and make Him happy with us. We can burn enough offerings to make God go, okay, that smells so good now, you've got me. I wish I could burn some lamb and make that smell, but I can't. I need you to do it for me. So, all right, whew. All right, now I'll forgive you. No, 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 it didn't work that way. There weren't enough sacrifices. There's not enough anything. To be baptized doesn't make us pleasing before God. It doesn't get around the requirement of obedience. We could be leading a connect group. We could be leading a church. We could read our Bibles every day. We could donate our money to great causes. There are so many things that we could do, do, do. But the problem is we don't obey God. And that puts us in a precarious situation. In a situation of Saul, of losing his position before God. In the situation of the Amalekites, of, of rejecting God as the true and living God of the world, of facing his judgment. That's the claim of the Bible. And then we hear God's word on Saul. His final kind of declaration. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. It's over. Look at verse 24. Saul answered Samuel, I've sinned. I've transgressed the Lord's command and your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. It's too late. You had your chance. You've rebelled. There is no way of coming back. How scary it would be to hear those words from the true and living God. It's too late. You haven't come and listened to me. If God's people are to have a king, he must sit underneath the word of God. He must hear the Lord and obey him. And that is not what Saul does. And from this point on, Saul is not the king. He might be wearing a crown on his head, but it's it's too late. God has plucked away his kingship from this king that the people wanted. The king that looks so good, like such a great leader who is head and shoulders above every other there. Look at verse 32. Samuel says, Bring Agag, king of Amalek. Agag came to him trembling, for he thought, 
Certainly the bitterness of death has come. Samuel declared, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. Then he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel did what Saul should have done. He should have judged the nation. He should have given the penalty for what this guy had done, for what his people had done. Samuel has to mop up what Saul couldn't do. So you get to this point and you're like, whoa, what has this got to do with us? This kind of story of God's judgment and there's a leadership crisis going on. What's the solution that will happen here? Well, Israel are still in a leadership crisis. But their solution is going to look a little different than what you might think. See, we're going to see next week that God is going to choose a king after his own heart. He goes along to a family with seven children and they all line up and they look big and strong and he goes to the first one and they're like, no, 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 don't you know? Is there any, have you got any other sons, Jesse? And they find this shepherd boy, a little kid, David. He will be the one. For he has me first. He wants to obey my word. So unlike Saul, who stood head and shoulders above everyone else, this little shepherd boy would lead God's people in the future because he would listen to the sound of the voice of the Lord. And we're going to see that's the defining characteristic of David as we look through. But ultimately, David will fail. David doesn't always listen. He's a far better king, we hear, far better than Saul, far, far better. But it's not until we hear the sound of the word of the Lord again as the, as the Old Testament closes and the New Testament starts, we, we hear of a baptism of John the Baptist. As John is there baptizing people, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, comes up from the line of David, one of David's own children. And he comes and is baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, this is heard from the heavens. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The sound of the voice of the Lord is heard. And what does it say? Here is my son. Here is the leader. Here is the one to listen to. Jesus is the king God approves of. He's the king of the world. That's the claim of history. If you look at the the secular sources, they point that this man Jesus died with a sign above his head, rebuking him, yes. But it said, king of the Jews. Problem was, it was too small. It was king of the universe. But they didn't see that. But this king is different from what you might think. Jesus is also the king who will bring God's judgment on the whole world. I think sometimes we think of Jesus as the fairy floss donator man. (laughs) The one who just brings all great and rosy stuff. But here we see that Jesus will bring God's judgment. What Saul failed to do, Jesus will do perfectly. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 42, as the gospel goes out about Jesus. Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Here is the king who will rule and enact God's judgment. The day has been set when Jesus, God's appointed king over the whole world, will bring the righteous judgment of God. Friends, judgment isn't just like some scary thing that they write in the Bible to make us scared of stuff. The claim of the Bible is it's true. That we do need to stand before the creator of all things, who we find out is actually Jesus. And we do need to give account for how we've lived and for how we've turned our back on God. And we will get what we deserve. 
2 Thessalonians 1 describes it as Jesus doing this. Look, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. Taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Too often the modern Christian church minimizes the judgment of Jesus. He's a king who will judge. God is not some fluffy marshmallow guy. Saul's mission to judge the Amalekites was a a local scale, small anticipation of the judgment that will finally come on the whole world. We need to not push away the truth that the world will be judged. It's like we're all standing on the train tracks going, there's no train coming, no trains come on these. That's fine. Tell the world Jesus is great and have fun on the platform or on the tracks. Rather than saying the reality that we look at in the world and what the Bible says is that Jesus is who the Bible claims he is, but there is a day coming when that train will come. And you need to be in Jesus because only in him can you survive because only in him has he paid the price. So the next part of that verse in Acts, Acts chapter 10, verse 43, listen to it. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Jesus is where God's wrath and his mercy meet. His judgment and his salvation. Yes, he is right. Yes, he will judge. But he will also save those who trust in him for he has faced that judgment on our behalf. He is a much better king than Saul. A much better king than David would be. He fulfills what God requires of him. He obeyed God. When was the last time you stopped and considered the obedience of Jesus? That he obeyed God. He heard the sound of his father and he did it. He wasn't just a listener, he was a doer. When did that affect you? Because I tell you, it needs to affect me more. (laughs) He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Friends, Jesus alone... He's able to satisfy God's requirements. Jesus alone is able to rule God's people as God requires of his king. Jesus alone will judge you and me. And Jesus alone is able to stand in our place and bear our sin for us. The question we've got to ask is, what will you do with the sound of the word of the Lord today? How will you respond to God? Obedience is better than sacrifice. How will you trust His Son? Will you? Will you look at the claim? Will you ask God to show you your sinfulness? Could it be that this is actually true? And will you let that change everything? Let's pray. Father, this morning... It's hard at times to stand back and see your judgment as right. We confess that we don't see sin as we should. We don't see its ugliness in others, in ourselves. We confess, Lord, that we have turned our backs on you, that we haven't treated you as the ruler and sustainer of all things, that we've ignored you and at best just pushed you away. At worst, stuck our fingers up in your face. Father, we ask today that you would show us our sin. That we would get an ever-growing perception of how we have turned our back on you. 
And that at the same time that you would match that ever-growing perception with an ever-growing sense of the forgiveness that comes because Jesus has died for our sin. We ask that we would look to your Son where your wrath and your mercy meet and that we would live our lives hearing the sound of your voice, not the cry of the world or the cry of our own hearts, but the word of the true and living God and that we would serve you with our all so that this world might come to know you and that you might look great as you really are, we ask.